Hello and welcome to the AMP podcast. My name is Fred Black and I am a research manager here at Ampere Analysis and I will be your host for today. If you're new to the show, firstly welcome and we hope you enjoy the episode. For context, Ampere Analysis is a market-leading data and analytics firm specialising in the global entertainment industry. This podcast is all about bringing together expert voices from across our company and across our research methodologies to discuss the latest trends in the wider media sector. And today I've got three guests with me, Izzy Charnley, Olivia Dean and Tom Hopestone-Bell. So maybe to kick off, let's have you each introduce yourselves, starting with you, Izzy. Hi, my name's Izzy. I'm in the consumer team at Ampere. The consumer team data is based on a biannual survey of over 50,000 respondents across 27 markets. And most recently, I've been focused on the recent Netflix announcement of uh, tackling account sharing from a consumer point of view. So looking at the demographics of account borrowers and their attitudes and behaviours. Hi, my name's Olivia. I work for the commissioning team here at Amper. We track first run commissions globally. So that's original series for VOD platforms and linear platforms. And over the past 24 months, we've been building out our data set on returning original series in key global markets. Hi, I'm uh, Tom Hopeston-Bell and I'm working as part of the analytics team. Our, our research is mainly focused on title tracking. So um, across the SVOD, AVOD, catch-up and uh, linear markets, um, we're tracking um, titles and assigning uh, metadata to them. And my latest piece of uh, research is um, on the return of BBC Three to linear TV in the UK. You are listening to the AMP podcast from Ampere Analysis. To learn more about Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com. Netflix announced in April that it had lost 200,000 subscribers in Q1 2022, a period where they expected to gain 2.5 million. Some of the reasons Netflix cited for this loss was pulling out of the Russian market and also account sharing. Izzy, could you give us an idea of the scale of the problem Netflix is facing with account sharing? In Netflix's letter to shareholders in Q1 2022, they picked up on around 100 million users who were using accounts that they weren't paying for or someone in the household wasn't paying for. And our consumer data based on responses of people who report using a Netflix account paid for by someone outside their household puts the number at around 8.6% of Netflix users globally. And this is an average of the last three years. It hasn't really changed much. Um, so it's not really like a growing problem. But looking at different countries, it does vary quite a lot um, between markets. So and interestingly, across Europe, um, the rates of account borrowing are a lot higher. So Netflix users in Norway um, that use an account paid for by someone outside of their household sits at around 13%. Um, it's similar for Sweden and uh, around 12% for the Netherlands. So across Europe, it is sitting at quite a higher percentage compared to other markets and the global average. North America has similarly slightly higher than average rates, around 9%. But obviously the the problem is, is quite a lot larger in Europe, um, excluding the big five. It's mainly in uh, Eastern Europe um, and a few other the Nordic countries that see the, the highest rates. Some of the lowest rates are in countries such as Indonesia, Russia, uh, Mexico, which see less than 5% of Netflix users account borrowing. 
in terms of comparing it to other um, providers, Netflix doesn't actually sit too highly in the sort of rankings of account borrowing being an issue. In terms of its direct competitors, Disney Plus has a a slightly bigger problem with with account borrowing than Netflix does with around uh, 10% of users account borrowing. HBO Max, Apple TV and Amazon Prime all sit uh, slightly lower, but not significantly lower um, rates. So it's not particularly a problem compared to uh, for Netflix compared to other competitors, but clearly it is something that they are looking to address, prompted by the the fall in in subscribers in Q1 2022. That's interesting, yeah, especially because Disney have spoken about it as well as a problem. So clearly the two of them are uh, seeing a dip in uh, potential revenues there. So the typical account borrower uh what do they look like what are the demographics well it kind of varies across the markets my report i kind of focused on um the countries where account sharing is a bit more of a problem so um europe and i focused on north america as well as that's a market that netflix directly mentioned um as being an issue um and they vary quite a lot there so across europe the a netflix account borrower tends to skew younger and doesn't really skew heavily towards any other income rate. So it's very much average income and it does skew towards being students. So you can kind of extrapolate that uh, across a lot of Europe, the account borrowers are students who may be living separately from their parents and using an account that is paid for by their parents. Whereas in North America, the story is a bit different. So they skew slightly older, around 25 to 34. They skew a lot lower income and are particularly more likely to be um, unemployed or part-time employed. So you can kind of um, put the pieces together and and see the picture is that it is lower income, less affluent households who are account borrowing. And because of their age, you can kind of guess that it might not necessarily be its family accounts that they're borrowing. It could be friends or... um, Um, partners. It poses an interesting sort of question on how um, a general strategy would uh, impact both of these different demographic groups when they are so they are so different. So these account borrowers, do we think that they are borrowing multiple services at the same time? Or do we think they'd be sticking only to Netflix? You would assume that like if they were borrowing from one service, maybe they'd borrow from others like intuitively. Um, I've I think it's common if they're borrowing from parents, if they're students in particular. Yeah. If you're already borrowing one service from your parents, it would make sense that you would be uh, a parasite on others. Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably also the case that a lot of people will have a group and one person will subscribe to one thing and one person will subscribe to another. So you pay for one subscription, but you get access to four. Do you think with the less affluent people in the US, you may just end up losing that subscriber entirely um given that you know they tend to be part-time employed or unemployed or i don't know it might be that they're you know more reliant on netflix's content so they're more likely to cough up it's quite i suppose that's difficult to tell um whether that will actually pay off or not if they are sort of poorer consumers it depends a lot on how exactly netflix is planning on enforcing uh, the rules. So if they're looking to really strictly enforce it by using sort of strategies such as device limits or um, using IP addresses and tracking user behavior and on the app and, and locking people out of accounts that they suspect of account sharing. If you're looking at North American consumers, they are not likely to be 
borrowing from from family members who potentially would be more willing to add on an extra payment every month just so you can access it. For these families, such as the ones in Europe, this would seem like a better deal and kind of reflects family plans that you see across things like music services like Spotify um, and Apple Music and things like that. But if you're borrowing from a friend, they may not be willing to pay an extra on their already, you know, potentially premium subscription um, just so you can access it. So it could be a bit of an issue there if Netflix doesn't find a way to really enforce it. Um, they may just, you know, carry on and, and ignore the options. But in, in sort of in a world where you are enforcing it and you're looking at these consumers in North America, specifically the less affluent ones or, or in other countries that are more cost conscious, you know, you're maybe less likely to get them to fork out for a full subscription where they weren't paying for one before. So potentially another strategy may be required from, from Netflix to, uh, to attract currently non-paying uh, but less affluent users to somehow start generating revenue for them. That ad tier announcement that came a few weeks ago, right? That they're going to, in the next one to two years, introduce that ad supported tier into Netflix. And I guess, again, um, they haven't really spoken much about exactly how they're going to do that, but it'd be very interesting them being a tech focused company, how they're going to implement those ads, because I suppose they know it works from services like HBO Max and Hulu that have those ad tiers, but making those ads less intrusive will make that ad tier even more appealing. But then obviously there's that um, balance of not getting people subscribed to the premium tier to drop down to the ad tier and then you're losing those premium customers um, and then also making your service, sort of the brand of the service feel less premium. But if they can pull off those ads really well, that could pick up loads of pe people that are already sort of used to AVOD services, which are seeing a massive growth in the US, could bring them onto Netflix and you know see, see a growth in subscribers that wouldn't subscribe otherwise. Yeah, definitely. When you look at AVOD popularity in the US particularly, it is definitely picking up. There is something like 12% of people reporting in the US reporting using AVOD services in the last month. And this is definitely going to be a popular option for, for, for lower income consumers and maybe yeah, a way for people who currently don't take Netflix in any way that uh, to introduce them to the app for a lesser cost. Although it is potentially a bit of a risky uh, strategy if they don't pull it off properly in terms of user experience because I guess adverts are typically quite unpopular when you're looking at Netflix borrowers specifically in terms of the people that they're targeting with these strategies they are quite unpopular only 22% report not minding seeing advertisement when they're watching TV and in country in in countries in Europe uh, AVOD is not nearly as popular as it is in the US Although when you're looking at the bigger picture um, the and you consider the amount they watch scheduled TV, which presumably has adverts, they seem to have no issue there with consuming adverts for the majority of their of their content watching time. I suppose even in Europe, a lot of BVOD services have adverts on. And so like while they're not, they don't say they mind, they say they don't mind watching adverts. They may be able to tolerate it. It's also, it's always more difficult to bring in ads after being ad free so if people are used to ads then they won't mind it so much but bringing ads into some to a space where they were not used to being advertised in is always difficult you sort of saw that a few years ago with youtube when they started increasing the ad load on their all their videos you saw a lot of um online pushback i would say about that i suppose youtube 
use hasn't decreased since then. That's I, true. I don't know no, the numbers yeah. on that. They managed to, you know. Did it translate to YouTube premium signups though? Mm, to no. avoid ads, I think the answer is no. In general, <laughs> there suppose, was pushback yeah. and resistance. Um, I suppose it's an increase in ad revenue. Yeah, and viewer, viewers got over it, yeah. I think it's fair basically, to say. Basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead of paying, yeah, yeah, which is what you're saying. Great. Um, so I think the last thing to talk about here is maybe uh, how this affects Netflix's original content. So are there any particular uh, genres of content that maybe are not being monetized in that the people who are watching them on Netflix are account sharers and so therefore uh, aren't paying for the originals? The favorite genres uh, among account sharers in terms of overall enjoyment, it's it's comedy, uh, number one, uh, 63% of these consumers reporting enjoying that kind of content and action adventure is number two, uh, followed by crime and thriller. So potentially quite expensive genres. Yeah, crime and thriller and sci-fi are not cheap to make so i can see why netflix are not happy about giving it away for free um olivia how much of those favorite genres is netflix making yeah i mean we pointed out that they are high-end scripted titles generally crime and thriller action and adventure sci-fi and fantasy they're all going to be costing a lot of money to make so if they're not giving a good return on investment netflix isn't going to be investing in them so if we look at q1 2022 we can see that crime and thriller is not the most commissioned genre. Only 13% of commissions from Netflix over that period were crime and thriller. If we narrow that down to look at returning shows where Netflix has decided to invest in another season, we can see that it reflects even a smaller proportion of Netflix commissions. So just 12% of renewals announced in Q1 2022 were crime and thriller. So I think Netflix is definitely shying away from the favourite genres of people who are more likely to be borrowing services from other people. They are some some flagship genres, though. I mean, you're thinking of things like Stranger Things, The Witcher. Do you think that could ha- then have a detrimental effect on those not account sharing if they're losing flagships like that? I mean, they haven't said they're going to cancel you, Stranger Things. No, I think, I mean, I'll get onto this a little bit later. They are obviously keen to announce renewals for high profile shows from these popular genres. And these genres aren't just popular with account sharers. They're also popular with the general demographic of Netflix uh, and, and other streamers. So, yeah, they're not shying away from renewing these high end scripted genres. Um, but I don't think it's fair to say that they're prioritising them either. Moving on from Netflix now, uh, we're going to talk about streaming renewals. Streaming renewals were at an all-time high in Q1 2022, with nearly 130 renewed seasons announced in the UK and the US markets only. What's been driving this surge in renewals, Olivia? It's been caused by a combination of factors. So for relative newcomers to the commissioning landscape, we're talking about commissioners that are maybe a decade or less old. So people like Netflix or Amazon, as those subscription services age, obviously their commissions will also age. So they'll be returning shows as opposed to new series. But it's also being caused by newcomers to the streaming landscape who are not new to content production. So commissioners like Disney Plus, Discovery Plus, um, they're not just relying on existing content that they're moving to VOD platforms. So titles that they initially intended for their linear platforms that they're now moving to SVOD for later seasons. They're also using the fact that they've got strong content branding to take long-term bets on shows that they just know that their users are going to love. For example, Disney renewed their nature documentary Home for an entire decade. I think The Bachelorette is renewed for like 
10 years as well, to That's be fair. True, well, people yeah. not get sick of it? No. no. I mean, they haven't got sick of it after 24 I seasons. Think it has to be I think they'll keep going. It's something mm. like that. Wow. For long term reality renewals, we tend to see four or five years. A decade is unusual. Yeah. yeah. Unusual for something so expensive as a nature documentary, as yeah. well, I think. I think they've, I mean, they've intended to produce one season a year, so they don't have many episodes per season, I suppose. In general, unscripted titles don't generally have fewer episodes than scripted titles, which well, is a common misconception. So documentaries actually aren't necessarily short and scripted. It's, there's a few episodes in it, but it's not enough to be a clear trend. Apart from documentaries, whatever types of content tend to get those multi-season renewals from both Disney Plus and other streaming services. And what does that tell us um, about the direction of SVOD original catalogues in the next two or three years? As I mentioned earlier, we do see multiple season renewals for high profile titles and also massively popular titles. So things like The Witcher, Emily in Paris, and most recently we saw a double season renewal for Heartstopper. And these are all scripted titles. They're all high budget, they're all high cost. And they're key to retain fans, but these types of renewals not only generate confidence in users because they know that the content they love is going to return for a few years, they also generate a lot of press. And I think that this creates the fallacy that scripted, expensive, high profile content is more likely to be renewed for multiple seasons, but that's actually not the case. Um, and the same is true for existing IP. So things like The Witcher, it's based on a book, Lord of the Rings, Wheel of Time, all of these titles had multiple season renewals. But in reality, unscripted titles, which are not only cheaper to make, but can also be massively popular. So things like The Floor is Lava, uh, Is It Cake and Selling Sunset, they're also just as likely to be renewed for multiple seasons. So I think 52% of streaming titles renewed for multiple seasons in Q122 were unscripted. Is it cake? I mean, it's difficult to tell. <laughs> it's too early to say. Uh, well, I suppose like on the subject of um, IP, we see like in the popularity metric that we developed at Ampere, um, it, that like IP is super important. So it not only gives that buzz that you're talking about that comes from the media. So lots of people are sort of uh, searching for the type of content. You get this like retrospective effect of um, older titles of that franchise becoming more popular. So if you have a new season of like, um, some Marvel thing come out on Disney Plus, then fans are going to go back and watch the old content as well. And then that month they're going to be like, wow, I watched loads of Disney Plus. I, I don't fancy churning. And it provides that recognizable brand. So like all Star Trek fans, uh, Trekkies as it were, um, will be subscribed to Paramount Plus because they're the home of Star Trek. And, um, you know, all of those Marvel fans will be on, on Disney if they want to watch that latest Marvel series come out week by week without like it being spoiled online because you have to be subscribed, especially with those weekly release strategies, which we see tend to be with the sort of um, those platforms that have those big franchises. You want to see those shows spoiler free, then um, you, you have to be subscribed over that, you know, monthly period. Yeah. The other thing with those multi-season renewals, of course, is that it allows you to bring your content back, your most popular content back more often. If you are able to shoot several seasons, one or two seasons back to back, you can bring it back without a break. But I guess the risk is that if there's a sudden drop off in your popularity, then you're uh, on the hook for a bunch of TV seasons that nobody actually wants. We had a new, these new seasons announced for Heartstopper last week, but they've already started filming and released the first look this week. So they obviously had these seasons planned, but they decided not to announce them. And whether that's hedging their bets of being able to you know, pull the plug at the last minute if the first season isn't successful, I don't know. 
What about the content preferences? We know then that those long-term bets are on content that is guaranteed or semi-guaranteed to be successful. Izzy, is that reflected in the content preferences of subscribers? When you look at global content um, preferences, uh, specifically genres, beyond the usual, which is, is comedy is always coming out on top in terms of both favourite and general enjoyment as well. Crime and thriller, action and adventure and sci-fi and fantasy are all top scorers among consumers. Um, when you're looking at crime and thriller, which is the second most favourite genre globally, you can also link that to the popularity of documentaries, which um, see, while they see low favoritism, uh, they see a high, relatively high um, reported enjoyment. You can see that the kind of popularity there with of documentaries, a lot of docuseries have been coming out on Netflix, for example, recently that focus a lot around crime and uh, those titles like the Tinder Swindler and the John Wayne Gacy tapes or things like the Ted Bundy tapes and the recently re- released Our Father are just uh, just to name a few of the many um, titles that have been released recently. So you can see there that it, those kind of contents types would be directly reflecting consumer enjoyment and patterns. And alongside that, reality and game shows are incredibly popular in terms of enjoyment, not so much with favoritism, but they are very, you know, easy watching and, um, and like you say, cheap to make and so popular you know, would be popular to renew and they do tend to sort of blow up um, and be quite talked about um, among viewers as well, which is always good, I suppose, for providers. And their popularity of, of reality in general is is typically on the rise. So you can only really expect to see, I guess, more response to that in, in time from, from providers as well. Um, and then when you're looking at specific content types, there is a high proportion of casual sort of casual viewing so people reporting watching sometimes or very often reality content it's around 50% in both the UK and the US which is where it's it's particularly popular and when you're thinking about i suppose you mentioned the sort of original content and like the the brand of of these providers these originals would be big selling points of of SVOD services and we can see that um 44% of consumers in Q3 2021 reporting that originals are the main reason that they subscribe to services so it is important for brands to really solidify this this sort of niche that they have with these content types i suppose coming back to like crime and thriller documentaries that was a big part of netflix's like brand building in the early days like i remember thinking netflix they're they're always you know producing those kind of documentaries so and yeah. i think where they've had success it's very easy to to continue that brand for example, where they've got uh, Ted Bundy tapes, it's part of conversations with the killer, which is then able to come back year after year. There's endless stories for them to find. You know, it's easily refreshable content uh, that they know already has a really good following. I think they were a happy accident in lockdown as well, when you couldn't produce uh, sort of normal TV because they are mainly made from existing footage. So you, all you really needed was somebody with a desk to splice splice it together and a bit of a voiceover. And I think they gained in popularity quite interestingly in a sort of time during COVID of mass paranoia. We were all watching tapes, uh, shows about serial killers, which I think is kind of weird, but quite cool. Um, I actually wanted to bring it back to a point you made right at the top, Izzy, about comedy being the enduring most popular genre. And I know, Olivia, it's also the most cancelled genre or the earliest cancelled genre at Netflix. Yeah, I mean, cancellations are quite complicated because they don't necessarily directly relate to shows that 
streamers or even linear providers have stopped making. The way we track cancellations means that we only have data for shows that have been announced as being cancelled. And I think the, the reason why comedy is the most cancelled genre is because it's also generally the most commissioned genre. So we're, we're talking about VOD cancellations in the US and the UK in 2021. So comedy was the most cancelled genre. And I think it's because, you know, comedy is subjective. A lot of commissioners, especially VOD commissioners, commission high volumes of comedy content in the hopes that something's going to be a hit. And that's actually reflective of VOD commissioning in general. Because commissioning has increased cancellations have increased. Um, I think that they're not shying away from that sort of scattergun approach. They'll throw all these things at the wall in the hopes that something will stick. Um, I also think that's part of the reason why we see more VOD cancellations than linear cancellations. I think it's to do with the fact that VOD companies are just more likely to announce that they've cancelled a show, whereas linear commissioners are happy to just let things sort of quietly die. I think also... VOD commissioners are more, are more likely to pull the plug on scripted commissions. They're more expensive. They've got to perform better uh, than a than an unscripted commission. And I think as well, we talked about favourite genres. And, and just because someone says, oh, crime and thriller or sci-fi and fantasy is my favourite genre doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they're watching all the time. And I think this easily digestible content like reality, documentary, um, these unscripted genres actually a lot of people will go to their streaming services to to put this easy watching stuff on in the background, even though they wouldn't identify it as their favourite genre. Do you think the number of unsuccessful comedy shows on platforms like Netflix has anything to do with their refusal to embrace the pilot model? Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. And I think we mostly see comedy pilots, in my opinion. Would you say, would you agree? Yeah, definitely. Most pilots it, are comedies because they're testing the waters to see if people actually think it's funny. It's also, yeah, about um, kind of, if you've got a sitcom, it's all about the chemistry with the ensemble and it's very difficult to Test judge that. that. Yeah. If you think of, yeah, your classic sitcoms, it's all about the chemistry between the stars. Um, yeah, I definitely think so. And I think if they're wanting to save money and invest in content they know is going to be popular they should perhaps either order shorter seasons or order one-off specials of these kinds of shows to test whether it's going to be popular or funny beforehand. I also think that a lot of these sort of sitcoms and comedies are less likely to create the kind of um, crazy buzz that you get from cheaper titles like Is It Cake? No one's going to say Is It Cake is their favourite show, but everybody's talking about it because it's so ridiculous and it costs nothing to make. It's my favourite show. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also not going to say it costs nothing yeah. to make. Um. No, no, and I think having a big depth of catalogue just does make people remember why they subscribed as well. It's not just for those hit shows. Maybe they get people in through the door, those tentpole titles. But like you do need a depth of catalogue to reduce uh, subscriber churn. And I think there was a piece of research published by uh, Richard Broughton here at Ampere that correlates um, the size of catalogue to um, the rate of churn of, of the uh, SVOD service using our subscription video economics data, um, which tracks using a, a sample, um, the churn rates of different SVOD platforms in the US that actually correlates the rate of churn with the size of catalog. So, you know, having those cheaper, cheaper commissions um, does improve that depth and, and, and retain subscribers for S4 players. And I think it's fair to say that titles like The Floor is Lava probably doesn't generate subscribers, but they definitely watch it once they're there because that when things are cheaper to make, 
streamers are happy to kind of hang on to it for longer because it's a good filler, um, especially if it is popular. And this kind of brings me back on to expensive IP. So these are adaptations of, in particular, books. And in this case, adaptations of books represent a higher proportion of cancellations than any other kind of television. And I think this is because they need that higher return on investment because they are so expensive to make. You've not only got to pay for the IP, you've also got to pay for the high-end CGI scripted remake of this book that has a massive fan following. So just because it's based on an existing IP that's popular doesn't mean it's going to enjoy a second season or a third season. So, you know, while we have got titles that are high profile that create this sort of fallacy like The Witcher, um, we also have things like The Irregulars, which was, you know, based on Sherlock Holmes, has a massive following, still managed to get cancelled after one season. Do you think that's maybe loyal book fans thinking, well, they've adapted this really poorly? Yeah, I mean, even The Witcher fell foul of that this season. I think they lost a fair bit of following because, you know, they haven't had, haven't adapted it quite how the readers imagined. But it's mainly that they, you know, it has to provide a higher return on investment than cheaper content. So, you know, when it comes to cancelling or renewing a title, they're going to be looking at, is this generating subscribers, not just retaining them? Yeah, I think adding subscribers is an interesting point around the new SVOD services that are have sister linear channels. So franchises are definitely something you see being used to migrate audiences from cable networks in particular. If you look at somebody like Paramount on Paramount Network, they've got one of the most successful shows on cable in Yellowstone. But if you're looking for all the spin-offs, if you're looking for the kind of after show talk show, you'll have to go to Paramount Plus to find that. So there's a very delicate line to walk between moving those audiences over willingly and making them feel like their favorite content is being snatched out of their hands and put onto an SVOD service they don't have a subscription for. I think you're seeing the same thing with Discovery and the way that franchises like 90 Day Fiancé, all of the Chopped series, lots of the new spin-offs for those are moving to Discovery Plus as well. So it doesn't have to be the most expensive content, but it is the most popular content that those companies are making. I think that also links in with what we were saying earlier about a clear content branding, you know, especially if they're moving over existing franchises. There's plenty of content moving from linear to VOD in a lot of different ways. BBC Three, however, and its content is moving from VOD to linear, having gone off air originally in 2016. Hello, listener. A little interruption here just to say that we recorded the next section about BBC Three moving from an online-only service back to being a linear channel before the news broke that the BBC were moving CBBC and BBC Four from linear channels to online-only. And so that's why you won't hear about that move referenced in the next 10 minutes. Tom, you've been looking into the analytics TV data to dive into the content shown on the channel in its first month back on Linear. Yeah, so I have. So like you've mentioned, BBC Three returned to our screens in February of this year. And I suppose that was mainly driven by the success of a lot of its uh, original shows um, on iPlayer. So just a few titles that spring to mind, things like Normal People, uh, People Just Do Nothing, Fleabag, you know, super successful award-winning titles. So the BBC was given a bit more money and um, they decided to uh, put BBC Three back on the air with the 
aim of serving um, sort of 16 to 34 year olds um, who are sort of currently underserved by the BBC. So the reason it kind of went off air was everyone um, in this sort of age range was thought to be moving um, across to SVOD services. So BBC Three was moved online. And um, sort of some of the research that we did um, showed the sort of proportion of time spent watching uh, scheduled channels has been dwindling since 2016 and that SVOD figure has been increasing. What we haven't seen is um, quite the same um, increase um, in catch-up services in the UK with uh, 16 to 34s. So BBC Three moving online um, hasn't really um, driven that uptake of BBC iPlayer with those sort of young people. Um, we also see that the sort of general age of people engaging with BBC content has started to skew older. So perhaps taking BBC Three off linear in the first place um, may have been a sort of mistake and they've lost that engagement with those 16 to 34s. So they're sort of hoping to re-engage them and particularly sort of uh, less affluent uh, demographics who who may not be able to afford SVOD services. So they may be account sharing um, on services like Netflix and with Netflix cutting, cracking down on that account sharing, BBC Three being on linear service sort of may help them out in terms of content. So a lot of BBC Three's success then is down to its successful programming over the last few years. Yeah, so it's had some super successful stuff uh, since 2016 when it moved online. So effectively, what we've done is we have a popularity score here at Ampere where we attribute um, a score on 0 to 100 based on sort of online engagement with different titles. And looking at the BBC's top titles, you know, either run on iPlayer or any of the BBC channels, we can see that within the top 10 most popular BBC programs since 2016, looking at peak popularity, uh, we see BBC Three shows make up 40% of this, despite, you know, only being one of uh, four main BBC channels. So at the top, we've got Normal People, and then we also have Killing Eve, Fleabag, and RuPaul's Drab Race. And, you know, what we see is the BBC using, well, what was BBC Three Online as a sort of test bed for sort of cutting edge comedy, cutting edge drama, things that wouldn't ordinarily be commissioned for, uh, say, a BBC One or a BBC Two. And then these shows, you know, get renewed for second seasons and then get transitioned onto... Um, onto BBC One. So we see this with a show uh, such as Fleabag, um, which did really, really well on BBC Three, um, won, a, won a number of awards. And as that shows, it was quite a sort of new style of comedy. Uh, it was tested out on BBC Three. And as it was uh, sort of renewed for a second season, that went out on uh, BBC One. Um, so you can use that um, sort of more progressive channel as a test bed for those shows that may or may not be popular. So it allows for some quite uh, interesting programming. Olivia then, talking of BBC Three's content, how has it been so successful as a commissioner? I think that they have a double-pronged approach. So their scripted titles, they're successful because they're high quality, quite a high number of them are co-productions. So they're spending a lot of money on these scripted commissions. And they're able to do that because there's a low volume of them. They, they can 
pinpoint things they're going to be successful and spend a lot of their budget on them. I also think that they're well positioned to, in comparison to VOD commissioners, run pilots, especially for things like comedy, so they can actually test whether it's going to be successful before they invest in the full season. And then I also think they have a, a wealth of unscripted content available. So this sort of easily digested content that we were talking about earlier, you know, they have reality romance shows, they've got crime and thriller, these sort of easily digestible unscripted content that's popular amongst viewers. And I think that one of the challenges that they face is that they have a relatively low number of commissions and in their move to linear, they're now having to fill a linear schedule. So I think that they're going to have to be very careful to maintain the high quality of their commissions, which have been key to their success, whilst also increasing the volume of commissions in order to fill their schedule. And they might not do that. They might decide to maintain quality and just rely on reruns or even new seasons of proven content that they know is going to be successful. Yeah, I mean, we see that in the sort of repeat rates we get with BBC Three compared to other BBC channels. So uh, looking at February, we had a sort of average repeat rate of 2.2 repeats per per uh, TV season. Whereas on BBC One, um, it's more like 1.5, BBC Two more like one and BBC Four uh, one again. So we are seeing them fall back and rely on this proven content that is of quality. And I think that's reflective of the way young people use linear TV. So if they want to select something brand new to watch, I think they're more likely to go to an SVOD service. But if they're just trying to flick something on in the evening, they might want something a little bit more familiar that they know is good, that they can just sit down and turn the TV on. And also it's worth remembering BBC Three runs a uh, 7 p.m. till 4 a.m. schedule. So it's got less of a schedule to fill. It's still got a relatively high repeat rate, but I think we'll see that come down as more of their sort of commissions are released. I know they've got a number of sort of reality commissions coming out and it sort of does drive up the sort of average release year of BBC content as well. So they are showing newer content, even though it is heavily repeated. I guess the big question left there is, are young people interested in linear TV or are the BBC trying to drag them back into a space that they've already vacated. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the idea of the BBC Three relaunch is to drag, you know, young people back from online viewing. Uh, it's to it's to target those currently sort of underserved by the BBC. In terms of the way that BBC Three works is it's funded by a license fee. So other linear channels like E4, ITV are more reliant on advertising. So they have to sort of end up targeting sort of more affluent young people that are more willing to sort of buy the products advertised on, on their channels. So BBC Three can sort of alter its programming in order to, to serve those less affluent viewers. And then it also is in quite a niche space in the sort of the world of uh, linear programming targeted at young people in that, you know, it's rivals, um, you know, ITV2, E4, Dave, those other youth oriented channels um, program far more US content. So BBC3 programmed almost entirely uh, local content in its first month, whereas E4, ITV is more reliant on US imports. Um, so ITV particularly focuses on uh, sort of adult animation content, things like American Dad, Family Guy, and E4 on uh, a lot of US sitcom content. So it's, it is positioned uniquely uniquely and it is more targeted at those young people still watching linear rather than trying to scrape people back from VOD services. 
And I think that's sort of part of it being a, a public service broadcaster is that it, it needs to serve everyone, um, you know, the BBC. I think that's an important point about the BBC providing a service there um, as part of its public broadcaster remit. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much to all our guests for their time and for sharing their research with us today. We've heard from Isabel about Netflix's account sharing problem, Olivia about streaming renewals at an all-time high, and finally Tom about the move of BBC Three from an online-only service back to a linear channel. As always, if you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed to the AMP podcast. And for more on Ampere's research and services, head over to ampereanalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at ampereanalysis.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you very much for listening. Thank you.